We are in the book of Nehemiah. So turn with me to Nehemiah. The word community is used uh, for a variety of purposes to indicate a certain uh, group of people who have something in common. For example, we may speak of a farming community or the academic community at a university or even an ethnic group, uh, such as the Italian community in New York City. In, in recent years, there's been many Christian leaders and authors who've begun to talk more about the importance of community among Christian believers. Uh, this is a correction, I believe, to the trajectory towards an indi individualistic approach to, to life as a Christian. I've sometimes defined, and I've seen it defined, biblical community as the common unity bound to God and to one another through the gospel. This morning, we're going to talk about unity. Sometimes people believe to be unified means that we have to agree on all things, but this can't be true in every way. Just look at the United States. Not every state is in agreement of all things. But there is unity in some key areas so, so we can remain united as, as one nation. So unity cannot mean that we, we have to agree on all things, but it does require that we're united on some important things. As Christians, there are particular areas where unity is required. Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross is an area where there needs to be unity. But the only way we come to unity and, and through unity is through leadership that brings us together. So this morning we're going to look at a passage here in, in Nehemiah 3 that shows us good leadership, a good leadership that fosters healthy unity between God's people. And so that's my main point for the text this morning. The main idea, the unity of God's people requires humble servant leadership. The unity of God's people requires humble servant leadership. And these, these two work together. Humble servant leadership will grow the unity of God's people together. So as I've said, we're in Nehemiah 3. If you haven't turned there, turn there. We, we approach this, this chapter and we approach a construction site, as we're going to find out. The work has begun on rebuilding the walls, the sounds of swinging hammers and stones being broken and, and, and placed have filled the ears of the readers at this point. And if we're honest, Nehemiah 3 is a chapter that, that we usually would speed through in our Bible reading plan. This chapter is a chapter for, uh, and, and really a lot of this book in some ways, for civil engineers to just salivate over. This process of a leader is thinking through. But, but what about a normal church member? We, 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 we will find out that most of the workers listed in this chapter are normal, ordinary people with no special skills in construction. And, and the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem as we will find out in this book, took 52 days, which is phenomenal. And how is that possible? Well, that's for us to understand as we walk through the rest of the book. But this morning, we're just going to look at just chapter 3. And so here's the outline for this chapter. The strength of servant leadership and the strength of unity. The, the key for building this wall in Jerusalem was servant leadership and strong unity. As you read through the chapter, you find there's over 40 different groups identified here. And together we find them working, relying on God's promises, practicing neighbor love, and exercising loyal faith in a project that they understood to be of great importance for themselves, for the city, and for the glory of God. 
So we're going to look at Nehemiah 3, and I was going to read the entire chapter as we began, but if you've looked at it, you see those names there, and uh, that would be the death of me, I think, this morning. So I will leave that up to you over lunch. You can all pronounce those names as you read through or think through. It would be a great activity over lunch. So point number one, the strength of servant leadership. And, And starting off, I'll read some verses here in this chapter. I won't leave it all out here, but uh, 3.1 seems to set the tone for the entire chapter and what, what's going to happen in, this, in this, uh, this full scope of this rebuilding. It says there, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. So let's stop there. It's, it's important to understand right at the onset of this chapter that the argument that the author is going to make to find out that the first persons that are mentioned are the spiritual leaders of Israel. He doesn't mention the the union members or the city officials. No, he mentions the priests. And he begins with the spiritual leaders, which then sets the tone for how the work will be done in rebuilding this wall. Eliashiv is the high priest. He's not just any priest. He's the guy that would go into the, to the most holy place every year on the Day of Atonement. He had a very unique uh, position that he represented the people before God. And, and what we read here in verse 1 is, is this guy, this, this, this first spiritual leader, was the first to put his hand out to begin the work. And so it's important for us to understand that leadership is seen most clearly as servanthood. Leadership, spiritual leadership, humble leadership is taking the initiative for the good of others. But your motivation should always be for the ones that you serve. So as spiritual leaders, we should eagerly lead by example. Now the opposite of servant leadership is selfish leadership. Servant leaders look to serve people, but selfish leaders look to control people. Servant leaders encourage others and seek their welfare, but selfish leaders promote themselves at the cost of those that they serve. And and last week we saw this clearly in chapter 2, or two weeks ago even at the beginning, those three men that are mentioned in chapter 2. Remember them? Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem. They were not servant leaders, but selfish leaders. They're most concerned about their position. They're most concerned about their territory. And and Nehemiah and the people coming in and swarming and taking that. They're most concerned about their power and control. And and they want the position of leader without the posture of a servant. And and now in chapter 3, we see the example of what should happen with with the high priest extending his hand to begin the work of the rebuilding of the wall, but then we see the negative example there in verse 5 with the nobles. Look there at verse 5. The Tekoites repaired. So the people from Tekoa, they, they step out and they serve, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So we see the negative example right there of what's happening. Pride is... is always an obstacle in doing the work of the Lord. These men couldn't humble themselves to do the work that was needed. 
that they would most likely be ashamed of the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve. They would have no respect for Jesus, most likely. That is not how they chose to live. Jesus would later teach his disciples, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus teaches us throughout the Gospels that greatness in this world is not acquired by striving for prominence and and grasping for power, but a humble, generous attitude of service for others. But that's not what we see in these nobles here in verse 5. And and so much of our world today tries to instill in us that the main goal is to satisfy, satisfy ourselves and that we should look out for number one. Selfism is the chief idol today. But Jesus tells us that we should be servant of all. And being a servant runs contrary to, to selfishness and, and selfism. These nobles or exalted ones had no intention of getting their hands dirty. Others from their city traveled in to, to work, but they, as the author says, wouldn't stoop that low. To not stoop suggests that it was pride that was driving them rather than laziness. Perhaps they felt that wasn't their problem. They weren't the ones that, that led this to happen in the first place. That was someone else's problem, someone else's issue. Either way, we learn pride is very cruel enemy to God the leadership. It inflates our importance and really makes holiness almost impossible. Pride views humility as failure rather than progress. So as in servant leadership, if we're to be like Jesus, and he should be our example in these things, then we need to be the ones who step out and serve. The unity of God's people requires humble servant leadership. So leaders that are here, how are you doing in displaying humble servant leadership? Only you can answer that question. Whether you serve in the church here or perhaps you serve in the workplace as a leader. Are you known for your humility in your leadership? Would that be a characteristic that others would talk about when they talk about you? Are you a humble leader? This passage should be an encouragement and a challenge for those of us in leadership. So that's the first point. It's a quick one. The second one is much longer. We've seen the strength of servant leadership. Second is the strength of unity. As I said at the beginning, all, all types of people are mentioned in the rebuilding of the walls throughout this chapter. The, the roster includes actually 41 separate groups. And through that list, we find out they're goldsmiths, perfu- perfumers, priests, union members, city officials, women, bachelors, temple servants, city guards, merchants, and even private individuals. So I said there were, there were women mentioned. There. There's, there's a father and his daughters, which gives me hope. Verse 12. Next to him, Shalom and the son of Halosh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. This man was not blessed with sons, and so he brings his daughters to come rebuild the wall. And, and, and we also read, as you go through the entire chapter, that there were many people 
who lived not in Jerusalem, but they lived in the nearby cities of Jericho and Tekoa and, and Gibeon and Mizpah. And, and the, they come in, and this ragtag list of, of people would, would not be your first choice of, of selection for a construction crew. Okay, there, there wouldn't be the, the list of what skills do you bring? But God will use them because they're unified for that common purpose of building the walls, building the gates. And I just, I thought this week, why, why in the world did these people go to a broken down, trash-ridden, dirty city to help build the, rebuild the walls? I mean, they don't live there. It's not like they're rebuilding. Some of them are rebuilding their own walls. In fact, as you walk through the chapter, you realize that Nehemiah had, had delegated certain uh, portions of the wall to be built by people that were right across their house. Super smart leadership decision there, right? If you're to rebuild the, the section of the wall that's across from your house, how strong would that wall be? Super strong, right? It's right across from your house. But it's not just those people that live in the city. No, no, they, they, they come from outside the city. And they come in. And, and the question is, why? Why did they leave their, their comfort? Why did they leave their, their work at home? You know, having to schedule someone else to take care of their animals, to come into the city. I believe it's because they knew the Lord. And they knew the significance of Jerusalem. They had been transformed by a Yahweh-centered life. And the faith in, in God had affected their, their life decisions. None of them probably at that point would think, I, I really want to move to Jerusalem. Because the city at this point was at its very lowest. And yet these, these believers come in and, and make their way to join the work under Nehemiah's leadership. Two things stand out in the, in the full chapter as you read through is the level of organization that was needed by Nehemiah and the delegation involved in accomplishing the big task. I find it interesting that, that people coming in, though, coming back to that topic, people coming in, though, out of Jerusalem and places like Jericho and Gibeon who would have no reason really to come in. It would seem like on the outside that there was no interest, no self-interest for themselves. It, it would seem to us, from this vantage point, that, that it would be no good for them to spend their time, their money, their energy to do this. But that's not true. This project of rebuilding the city wall was more than just rebuilding the defenses in case the city was to be attacked. Now, what we find out in, in the Old Testament is Jerusalem was God's city. The city of David, as, as much as Solomon's temple was recognized by the people of God as the place where God had chosen to make his name dwell. It was in this city, as much as the temple itself, that worship was offered, sacrifices made, sin atoned for, and the presence of God was found. So this was very significant for God's people to come in and to rebuild this. It did have impact on their life and their worship. And this might be hard for us to understand today because the temple is now the church rather than a city or a region. It's, it's the church. And when I mean the church, I don't mean the building. Okay? So if you say, and we did when growing up, it's time to go to church, this is the church. 
okay? And the church gathers here, and God's Spirit indwells the church. So the church have the Spirit indwelling them. We are the temple of God, and we long for that city to be reunited with the Lord and with believers from every century. But for the believers in the Old Testament, Jerusalem needed to be in a condition so that God-prescribed worship could be offered, meaning that the walls would need to be rebuilt so that it would be protected and to protect the city and the temple from the enemies, some of which we've already seen the enemies in this book. So, So no matter how far away people live from Jerusalem, this was still their city. They had invested interests here, as much as those who lived within the, the city limits. But what happens in this rebuilding was something that was rather uh, just strangely seen of what we see. We see the variety of workers, as I mentioned, you know, the, the goldsmiths and priests and perfumers and union members, all sorts of pity, people from all sorts of walks of life. But, but what happens even in those, those different people and those different circumstances and different gifts that they have and they come here, what happens to the building process if people are not unified? What happens if, if they begin to fight and, and they begin to say, I don't want to build this section, I want to build that section? What happens to the rebuilding of the city walls? You know, from the, from the very beginning, if that happens, the task of rebuilding the walls and then the, the security of God's city would be doomed if people began to fight and fight what they want and, and rivalry would begin to grow, to grow. So the task, if it was to be done, if the walls were, were to be rebuilt, there would need to be harmony with the people who are working. You know, I think division is one of the most tragic occurrences in the life of a church. Unity should be one of the hallmarks of a church. A unity that transcends racial divides. A a unity that goes beyond income levels and education accomplishments. Where every other worldly division could seep into your mind, you name it. And yet what happens in the church is that divides begin to form and people begin to take sides. And what does that mean for you, friends? It means that when you begin to notice the divides that are seeping into your mind and you're unwilling to, to let's say, go and meet someone who's different than you, that you're causing disunity. Those very divides, even subtle in our minds and our hearts, those are the ones that the gospel gives us power to overcome. Those are the divides that as a church we would reject for the sake of the gospel and unity with God. Those are the divides that, you, that when you recognize, you fight to find unity with those who are trusting in Christ. When churches divide for foolish reasons, they identify themselves with something ultimately other than Jesus Christ. They become churches of this type of music. They become churches of that famous pastor. 
They become churches of homeschoolers or churches of Republicans or churches of pews rather than chairs or churches of green carpet than blue carpet. And as soon as this happens, we're no longer the church that identifies with Jesus Christ, but we're the church that identifies with the hobby horse that we're so in tuned with. We may be a united church, but we may be united in the wrong thing. And that's not true Christian unity. You ever thought about this much? What do you really want our church to be united around? What is the most important thing that we should be united around? Is it a 10.30 a.m. service? We need to have a 10.30. No, let's have an 8 o'clock so I can get home and have more time to myself. I see this couple of smirks. You understand. These are things that churches debate and work through, right? And they're not bad topics. They're not sinful. But is that what we should be united around? Is it, is it really that or is it politics? Is that where the first level unite, unity should come? If you were here during COVID, you would understand where some of the levels grew up to this first level of are we united as, as a church in this, of our, all of our views of COVID? Or is it income levels of different people or, or gifts or personalities or hobbies? Is that really what we should be united about as, as Christians? Or even more, are we united because of the pastor? He's so great. If he leaves, I leave. Oh, friend, I hope that's never true of you. What happens if the pastor retires? What happens if, if your friends that you are united with in, in politics change their views? What happens with whatever you think have to be united with changes in that church? What do you do? You know, as, as a church, we should have top-level unity around Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross. If you're curious, as a church, what we unite around, it's, it's our doctrinal essentials. That document is about a one page, that list, those are top-level things. Those are things that we say we have to have unity about. We have to have agreement on these things. And then from there, as a church leadership, we go down to second-level things that sometimes we can disagree with, and then even third-level things that we say we're not going to disagree. We're not going disassoci- to disassociate with other Christians with. It's good for you to ask these questions, though. These, these people gathered here in Nehemiah 3 were, were unified. And this, this, this sole task of rebuilding the city. And we see the strength of unity throughout this chapter. We see people living out, Philippians 1.27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. To mention that, it's throughout this passage, strive, striving side by side. Different walks of life. But Philippians says we strive side by side here in the church for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
And as Christians, we're bound together through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're bound together in him. And we find our unity because God indwells Christians. It's what we sang about earlier. There is one gospel. That phrase, and in this gospel, the church is one. We do not walk alone. We have his spirit as we press on. There's only one Holy Spirit, and the same spirit that dwelt with our Lord Jesus Christ also dwells in your hearts. Just chew on that for a little bit, friends. That's why Jesus could say, it's okay for me to go. Because he knew what was going to come and indwell our hearts. The Holy Spirit. He himself. The same Spirit dwells in all of the fellow members, all the Christians in this church family. And we are one in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul says in that passage in Philippians 1, striving side by side, it's a picture of teamwork, of workers side by side, building something together. That is what we find out in Nehemiah 3. Each family, each group, working side by side for the common purpose of building this wall. And and it really is, when you think about it, a magnificent list of the beauty of what God does through godly, humble, servant leadership and those in, in the midst, people, who desire to follow godly leadership and work together side by side. Well, the last thing I want you to notice here is verse 32. Just jump to the end of the passage here. It says, in between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. The, the sheep gate, that location of the sheep gate was, was strategic for the city and, and for temple sacrifice. If you were to spend a moment or two flipping to the back of your Bible, you see probably pictures, you can Google this, of Jerusalem and see the, 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 the setup of the city and the sheep gate was to the north side. And this gate allowed sheep to enter and to be ushered directly to where they would be sacrificed. And the, the sheep gate, if you remember, is mentioned in verse 1 as the, as the high priest and the others build. And then it's mentioned in 32. And this is an indirect inclusio. An inclusio, that's a, a bracketing device in, in writing to give us a clue of, of what shouldn't be missed in this passage. And so what he's essentially saying in verse 1 and verse 32 is, is the project began and end, ended with the sheep gate. So he's bringing it full circle because he wants us to understand the sheep gate and why this is important. And so why is it important? What is the significance of this? Well, I think it's because everything began and ended with worship for God's people. God is their number one priority. Their focus. He is their, their prime concern for life. Is that true for you, friend? Is God at that number one spot? Does everything begin and end with Him? In verse, you go back to the three, verse one. Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And then it says, they consecrated it and set its doors. To consecrate means to set something aside for a unique task. 
In, in the Hebrew, it is related to the word holy. So the, the sheep gate was a holy, unique, set-aside gate, and they consecrate it. They consecrate the gate, and they set its doors. But if, if you read the chapter, if you at all read the chapter this week, did you notice something that's different in this door being set than the rest of them, the rest of the chapter? Look at verse 3. Just skip down. It's, they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Verse 6, same thing. Verse 13, same thing. Every other gate that's listed, it says it set, it set its doors, set its bolts, set its bars. Why would they do that? To keep the city safe, right? I mean, you do that, right? Any men that agree with me, what's the last thing you do before you go to bed? I check all the doors, make sure no children unlocked it and left it wide open. I want to go to sleep with the doors locked. So I check all the doors, and then I go to bed to, to, to be safe. And every other gate that's listed in this chapter says it said its doors, its bolts, and its bars, except the sheep gate in Jerusalem. This gate had doors, but it had no bolts and no bars. And this is wonderful, friends. This is truly wonderful if you think about this. That door was open. It wasn't bolted. It wasn't barred up. It was open. Jesus said to us in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. When Jesus speaks in John 10, he's saying, I am exclusive. Jesus doesn't say that he is a door. Jesus says, I am the door. And he's saying to us, I am the only way you will find salvation. And in that passage in John 10, you need to notice that this offer is open to all. If anyone enters by me. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the only way for salvation. And he says this offer is open to all. It doesn't say that you have to come from the right family. It doesn't say that you have to have a clean record. It doesn't say you have to somehow prove yourself to be worthy to come into Jesus' presence. It says anyone, if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And there are people today that, that reject and, and, and say that it's wrong for us to say that Jesus is exclusive, that he's the only way of salvation and when they say that, it truly shows that they, they don't understand the reality of their need for salvation. You know, a man walking in the desert and dying of thirst will not complain if he comes to the only source of water. He will drink and he will live. And, and someone dying of cancer will not object if there's, if there's only one person that can donate bone marrow that saves their life. No, they will gladly receive the donation and they will live. And a sinner 
realizing that their own sin and the destruction that awaits them in their sin, if he stays in their sin, and the judgment that will come when this life is over, they will not object that Jesus took their sin upon himself on the cross. They won't say, why is there only one way? They will accept that way. Which means, the point from believers, the true objection that they have to Jesus is really an objection to God's judgment against their sin. It's the, it's the, 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 the insatiable desire to continue to defend themselves and defend their sin, and they refuse to confess their guilt, and they don't want to admit that they've done anything wrong. But friend, if you're here and you're not in Jesus Christ, you know deep down in your soul that you have offended a holy God. And yet, you might demand another way, any other way to get salvation. And there are many that delight in in saying there are many ways to God, but friend, the Bible is clear. There is only one way to receive eternal forgiveness from our sins. And our entrance, our gate, our door is through Jesus Christ. And the door to salvation is open to all. There are no bolts. There are no bars, friends. And so that offer is open to you this morning. Have you walked through the door of salvation, friends? Friend, if you're exhausting yourself and walking through doors that are leading to you nowhere, have you realized that? Maybe the door you're walking through is friendship, thinking that is where you're going to find freedom and salvation and acceptance, but then friends disappoint you. Or perhaps the door is, is success. If you just work hard enough, success will come, and then you'll find have peace, and, and you'll have all that you want, but then you lose your job. Or perhaps even a good thing, marriage, you think that's the door. If, if I just get married, if I can just have marriage, if I can just have this spouse, then I will understand finally peace and joy. But then the person you marry is selfish. And they think about themselves. And, and for some, they have left you. They abandon you. See, for all of these doors really don't lead to salvation. They lead to more turmoil and pain. But the door to Jesus Christ... That is the only one where you will find joy and peace and rest and salvation through him. And so my plea to you, friends, is to trust in Christ this morning. He is the only way to salvation. And Christians that are here this morning, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we're saved from sin's penalty, power, and presence. When we're saved in Christ, we're immediately saved from the penalty of sin. And we're saved from the power of sin. We no longer have to live a life of sin because it lacks the power it once did before Jesus Christ. And we're saved from the presence of sin. The Bible calls this sanctification. 
that we're continuing being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ more and more each day as we strive to walk in obedience to him through his word. And so this should give us great hope, friends. See, when we sing about the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, Christian, this should bring hope to you, of a reminder again of what, of what God has done for you that you presently dwell in. And so don't ever think of the gospel as just for, some, just for the unbelievers. Just, just give it to them. No, it's for us. It's for us to rest in. It's for us to rejoice in and to glory in. So that's why we talk about it so much. That's why we sing about it. Because it gives great hope for us as Christians. Well, under Nehemiah's leadership, the work of rebuilding the wall was off to a fantastic start. But as we will see as we go through the book, it it won't be easy to finish. There's going to come discouragement and and opponents who would come to the scene to, to dissuade them from finishing. But as time went on, they began to realize that they would they would be building something that they could dedicate and consecrate essentially to the Lord and his glory. And and their greatest reward was to work together in unity and to leave something behind which would then outlive them. See, the the workers, I don't know if this is surprising to you, but all the people listed are dead. Okay, others benefited from their work. The walls would remain. Jerusalem's wall survived as an honored monument, not to the builder's commitment, not to Nehemiah's leadership, but to the faithfulness of their God. And and to the coming generations that would follow them, that wall would be vocal. The stones would cry out with a message to all that their Lord was worthy of their trust. Do we view that work the same here in this ministry? Do you realize that we all sit comfortably this morning in a building protected by the elements, seated with one another, simply because a Christian before you worked and sacrificed and gave to the work of the ministry here. And a lot of them are dead. They're with God. And we reap from their hard work. And it's not just a building. I mean, it's, it's important. I, I love that we have a building that is a, a great benefit to ministry, but it's not just the building. It's the ministry the ministries that started here long before we were ever on the scene. They're a testimony of God's goodness. They're a testimony of of fellow Christians working together in unity for the glory of God. So it's good for us to to go back and read history. One of Zach's task that I gave him when he came on staff as a PA was to kind of rebuild and and lay out the history of this church so that we wouldn't so much, you know, build a monument to the people that built here, but that we could praise God for the work that the people did here. And that you, church, 
for many of you who've, who are relatively new in the last 10, 15 years, have no idea what's happened here, where that beam came from. I've heard the stories. But I'm not worried about the beam. I'm not even concerned about that. It's the, it's the, the men who sacrificed, the women who gave, who served the Lord. And because of that, this building stands. But not only just the building, the ministries that happened here for years and decades. See, ministry didn't begin with you and me here. And Lord willing, it won't end with you and me here. We follow the steps of faithful Christians who gave of themselves in common unity, bound to God and bound to one another through the gospel. And it's truly something when a Christian and a church can leave something behind in this world which shows the incredible goodness of God. We see the blessing given in Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. For those who die in the Lord, they have the indescribable joy in heaven to understand how their work and their service and their unity on earth furthered the work of the gospel. And so that's our call now as a church, to continue on that path, to continue on to be faithful to Jesus and loving and caring to one another in this church family. And as we journey and we wait for the Lord to come back for his bride, we continue to rejoice and rest in him. Psalm 126 is one of those psalms of ascent that God's people would recite as they journeyed. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. We seek to do this every week, every Lord's Day here to rehearse the good things that God has done for us. And we look forward to that coming day when we will see him face to face. And so we're going to end our time this morning singing of this. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and we will weep no more. That is a rejoicing song for us as believers. And so we're going to sing that now, but I'm going to pray first. Lord God, we pray that you would give every one of us the humility that comes from knowing both our sinful state before you and your amazing love for us in Jesus Christ. And God, as you chip away the pride from our hearts, we ask that you would ship it out the door of this church. And that you would build in us groups of wise, humble, thankful, and selfless people of this church body. And Lord, make us those who show your holiness and your unity and your love to the world around us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Lord, please come quickly. Amen.